everyone and welcome to episode 7 of the History Hotline. Today this episode will be about the British Black Panther movement. Obviously I am sure you are aware that there were Black Panthers in America. We will not be talking about them today, we are talking about the British Black Panthers. They did exist. They were most definitely inspired by the American Panthers and a lot of the leading figures in the American Panthers, you know, did visit England and shape the movement in some way in Britain. However, in Britain the Black Panthers functioned in a different way within society than they did so in America because both black people in America and black people in Britain at that time and always were facing different struggles and had different legalities um, that they could work with for example in America there is the right to bear arms so the Black Panthers did arm themselves um, and that you know obviously caused a lot of problems and situations whereas in Britain that would not be even a thing to question because there is no right to bear arms That's just one example. There are many different ones. We'll get through them as we go along in this episode because it's all relevant. It's all important. Just a little disclaimer for this episode. I would say all of my podcast episodes are standalone. You can listen to them on their own. However, I think for this one, you'll benefit most if you listen to the Mangrove Nine episodes, um, especially part two. A lot of the figures and a lot of the leading people in the Black Panther Party, as we discussed in the Mangrove Nine episode, were also part of the Mangrove Nine protest and the trial. And so without that episode, there might be some things that don't really make sense. And I think just for optimum understanding... And, you know, to take away the most that you can from this podcast, I would say to have a listen to those two first. Um, You definitely can take this one on its own. However, I think for peak understanding, it would be best to go back to episode one and two, Mangrove Nine and Mangrove Nine Part Two, just for the best um, level of understanding. The black community, not only in Notting Hill, but all over this country, has a certain experience with the police. And that experience, in my terms, is one which could be easily described as brutal, harassing, and generally repressive. The British Black Panthers were an organisation, a black power organisation in the UK, and they fought for the rights of black people. Now, the term black people and black, obviously, you know, race being a social construct, I know, is a social construct. I think there's a whole other episode of why race is a social construct. But simply put, you know, who was defined as black as time has gone on and where you're defined as as a black person, it shifts dependent on the society. So, for example, in the 80s, um, in the 70s, if you were non-white, so if you were Asian, um, if you're from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, if you were Jamaican, if you're from Africa... You were black, all of you, every single one of you. Um, Now, obviously, blackness and who defines as black and who can define as black, that has also shifted a little bit with um, it being based based on observational factors, literally the colour of your skin and how dark you are. In America, during slavery, it was based off of if you were lighter or darker than a paper bag. Um, in Caribbean societies, it depended on your parentage of how many of your parents were black or white, what percentage you were. Um, the terminology and the definitions of blackness um, have changed, and that is why race is a social construct. Getting back to the point of black people in 
Um, you know, the Black Panthers, they were not all quote-unquote black as we know today. There were Asian people in there. Um, we'll get into, into them and into their stories slightly later. But this was an organisation that was fighting essentially for all people of colour. As much as I hate the term, it was fighting for non-white people, people that would have faced racial prejudice, discrimination in various forms. We heard Darkest Howe slightly earlier talking about racial discrimination from the police and how repressive they are. But this wasn't just limited to the police. There were protest movements and organising within this party and this movement for education. Um, as you probably remember from the Educationally Subnormal episode, it was the Black Panthers that were fighting against these educationally subnormal schools and fighting against black children from being defined as educationally subnormal based literally on the colour of their skin and their alleged IQ being lower than white children. But this movement was, it was fighting for, you know, a lot of things that were happening to black and brown people in England, whether that would be housing, discrimination in the workplace, you know, these laws that we now rely on, like, you know, anti-discrimination laws, they weren't a thing back in 1968 when the Panthers started. And now we don't really have this long-lasting legacy of the Panthers like they do in America because the movement was quite short. It only lasted until around 1973 the impact and the reach, it wasn't as big as it was in America. Um, but I think it, that is because of the different needs um, and the different types of people that were fighting in Britain. Those that were fighting under the banner of Black Panthers in Britain compared to those fighting under the banner of Black Panthers in America. The two struggles were completely different. We've seen that today um, and it was the same back in the 60s and 70s. One of the main differences um, in you know, the racial climate in Britain and America is the fact that in Britain, um, black and brown people were immigrants or the children of immigrants. They had recently arrived in the country and although they had arrived as British citizens uh, from the Commonwealth and the colonies, the struggle for them was slightly different in a sense of immigration laws and immigration acts and trying to oppose them became a core struggle and a core fight for the Black Panthers, whereas in America that wouldn't be um, a core struggle, it wouldn't be one of their biggest fights because um, black people in America, especially, well, only African-American... Af because African-Americans in America were brought over forcibly um, from Africa as, as enslaved people. And so they would have been there for many more generations than black and brown people had en masse in Britain being around. Um, so also that kind of led to a generational a dis distancing Maybe because the older generation um, within especially Caribbean communities that moved to Britain, you know, they came here for a better life or to fill the labour supply and to take on jobs that they were recruited for in the Caribbean. They came to Britain with a sense of, you know, we're quite lucky to be here. We just need to get our heads down and make a good life for ourselves and our children. But then it was their children and maybe some of the people that came later on that said, you know what, actually, no, we're not just going to put our heads down and work hard and, you know, maybe be rewarded and, you know, deal with the discrimination that comes our way. We're actually going to fight for our rights in this country because we are British citizens and we have the right to be here and live a comfortable life. And so that difference um, and that shift from one generation to the next, I think, is the reason why the Black Panthers begin to peak in the 70s and not any earlier, because earlier were, you know, the older generation who were quite set in the ways of, you know, they're still feeling very British, they're very patriotic. Their home countries are still British colonies um, and 
I think that impacted the way in which the Black Panther movement grew in Britain later on. Also, in England, there is no colour bar. There is no like legal colour bar anyway. However, in America, there's literally Jim Crow, there's segregation laws. It is the law that black and white people must be separate in certain states and in certain places in America. Um, and that was part of the fight. So the Black Panthers uh, started up in Notting Hill to begin with um, and eventually quite quickly actually moved to Brixton. They were actually financed, quite interestingly, by um, the Booker Prize Award money that was won by John Berger. Um, And he shared half the proceeds uh, with the black movement because he said that this black movement, with its socialist and revolutionary perspective, um, he finds himself in most agreement with in this country. And so he decided to share that prize with the Black Panther movement so that they could set up um, up their headquarters in Brixton. They eventually managed to grow from that. They had several branches um, all across the UK, mostly in London, but it did grow. At first, members were required to learn self-defence so that they could stand up for themselves in situations of protest. They fought for better housing provisions, for legal aid, and they resisted the immigration policies. And they also published their own paper called the Freedom News. And another paper later on was born out of the Black Panther movement, which was called Race Today. And that continued on for about 15 years, quite long after the Black Panthers had, you know, not really disbanded, but the organisation had um, fallen away slightly. It was a grassroots organisation. It worked, you know, within the community, it worked for the people, within the people. And it wasn't necessarily a big political party that was always working from the top down. It was quite a bottom-up organisation in the sense that it was rooted in the community. Now, I know we said we're not going to be talking about the Americans, but we have to because this movement was influenced by America so greatly. Now, we have Malcolm X. Um, Obviously, if you don't know who Malcolm X is, I would suggest you do some reading. But for anyone that doesn't know wants to know now, he's a big um, vocal activist within uh, the civil rights movement in America. And he visited the UK in 1964 and 1965. He actually visited Birmingham, visited Smethwick, um, and he was on Marshall Street. There's some great theatre about that, if you ever have a chance to see it, if we ever get back to the theatre again. He actually came to Birmingham nine days before he was assassinated in 1965. So you can imagine the seeds that he planted whilst in England in 64 and 65, and then his assassination, um, which obviously created... It was like national mourning, you know, people were obviously outraged at what was happening to these black leaders in America. Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture, who was one of the members of the Black Panthers in America, he spoke in 1967 in Britain and there was an absolute massive fuss about the whole thing. Um, He was banned from Britain after his speech at the Roundhouse. It was a big palaver, to say the least. Um, I might try and insert a clip of one of his speeches. Yes, that's coming up next. Stokely Carmichael, the most militant of the American Negro leaders, has paid his first and almost certainly his last visit to England. We have never lynched a white man. We have never burnt their churches. We have never bombed their houses. We have never beat them in the streets. I wish we could say the same for white people around the world. So, as you can hear, he was saying some absolutely radical, outrageous, crazy stuff. Honestly, I'm going to tell you this now, don't ever forget it. Black power, movement of black power, black liberation and black pride in the Western world 
are always met with fear and hostility. A black man using a platform that was given to him, he's not taken by force, saying things that are clearly true is a big problem. Historically, and I would even say to this day, it is the case that unfortunately, when there are movements for black liberation, they are always met with fear. And fear is the only way to describe it because this fear, it transcends any form of rational behaviour. Because you will see as we get on in this podcast and as they did in America, the level of surveillance on these leaders of these black movements speaking out against the atrocities that would be meted out to black people and brown people in this country and in America, they are met with such hostility from the state and from the agents of the state, so the police and the legal system. The amount of surveillance on these people, the fact that Stokely Carmichael is banned from Britain, the fact that one of the first people to be convicted under the 1965 Race Relations Act is a black man called Michael DeFreitas, otherwise known as Michael X, in Britain, I think that just highlights just how fearful the state is when it comes to movements of black liberation. I just casually dropped in the fact about Michael um, Michael X in there and I think I need to explain it just to give you some context. But essentially, Michael X said um, in 1958, I believe, he said, I saw white savages kicking black women in the streets and black brothers running away. If you ever see a white laying hands on a black woman, kill him immediately. Now, this is a quote. For anyone listening, that is a quote from Michael X. That is what he said. That is not my words. I'm not advocating for anybody to kill anybody. Um, But that was said to be inciting violence against white people. And so he was um, tried and charged with uh, breaking that 1965 Race Relations Act. An act that was put in place to protect black and brown people was now being used to convict black and brown people. Hilarious to me. Anyway, back back to America. The origins. 1968, to be precise, Martin Luther King is assassinated, he's murdered, and as we know, Martin Luther King has been used as the beacon of non-violent protest, um, he's, his name is coming up all the time, his quotes are being reshared on social media about how protests should be non-violent and how we should, you know, drive out darkness with light, not more darkness, however... When you kill the beacon of non-violence with violence, literally, what can be expected but violent uprising? I don't understand how people cannot understand that connection. If you literally take a person that has literally preached and preached and spoken and marched peacefully and advocated for non-violent protest and then you have taken that same violence that he is speaking up against that you've loved for so long um, and then use that to kill him the only reaction is unfortunately going to be quite a violent one and that is why the Black Panthers in America grew so much because they were talking about you know arming ourselves if someone attacks you for the colour of your skin you attack them back you're armed with a gun you use your right to bear arms and you walk with those arms at all times so that people can see them and people can know not to try you those are the tactics of the American Black Panthers now Britain could not adopt the same tactics because they could not bear arms they could not carry weapons it was illegal it wasn't illegal in america although as soon as the panthers in america started carrying firearms um and using their right to bear arms the mulford act was passed which was a california bill prohibiting the public carrying loaded um firearms 
And obviously, you know, America are really big on their gun laws. They don't want good controls. They want the right to bear arms. And the point of this um, gun control law was that, you know, it was passed because obviously many more black people were carrying firearms and that was creating fear. As I said earlier, black liberation equals fear. And it's so funny because the NRA, who every time there's a school shooting, come out in defence of carrying firearms and saying, you know, it's not the fact that they've got a gun, it's just that they're a bad person. If they didn't have a gun, they'd have some other kind of weapon. La da da. The NRA supported this gun control law. Can you imagine? The NRA were like, yeah, no, we, we, we don't want black people to have guns either, even though that would mess with our money. So, as you can see, the pushback, the whole ideology of non-violence, it's not really going to stick with the Panthers. And in Britain, they adopt this in a sense of having their members um, train in self-defence and being of the mindset that, you know, if someone attacks you, you should attack back. You should not just take it lying down. Obviously, they couldn't have guns. I just wanted to just give a disclaimer that I've made a lot of generalising and sweeping statements about American. I understand that it's a very diverse widespread population who have a range of different views and ideologies and any Americans listening please don't feel like I've put you all in a box I understand you are all you know a diverse body of people however sometimes the values that you appear to represent on a global scale are questionable and those are the values that I'm mentioning when I refer to Americans throughout this podcast my apologies anyway back to Britain so the British Black Panthers the movement you know, inspired by the Americans, we've got a man called Obi Egbuna, who had spent a lot of time in the US learning about the Black Panthers and the party. And he decided to kind of start this movement in the UK alongside Darkus Howe, Linton Kwesi Johnson, Olive Morris, also influenced by America. They all came together to start the party. There was also Althea jones Lacointe, who we heard about from the Manga of Nine trial because she was one of the people that defended herself, as well as Darkus Howe, who I mentioned just two seconds ago, and Farouk Dondi, who we also mentioned in the Manga of Nine episode because he was one of the people in court, not charged with anything, but he was there every day taking notes so that the um, you know, the nine accused could go home after the trial, discuss what happened in the day and then prepare for the next day. The trial was one of the longest in UK history, court history. And so it was obviously, you know, very important that they made notes so that they could come back fresh in the next day, ready to fight their case again. And Fruit Dundee was um, South Asian and so was Marla Sen, who were activists within the Black Panthers, as I mentioned before, it was for Asian people as well. And political blackness was a thing. It's quite an othering term to just class everyone that's not white as black. And it does, I think, personally diminish people from their individual identity, um, whether that be from, you know, being from the continent of Asia or the Caribbean or Africa, it really diminishes that. And I think the label black is quite problematic in some ways. It's, it's not for today's episode. We will not be getting into it. But it is also the reason why sometimes in Black History Month, you'll have people bringing in Asian people within the history um, where the month is meant to be specifically for black people. Now, when the month was created and throughout the history of the month being a thing, that has shifted and so Asian people would have been a part of Black History Month at some points and I think it is, it's our parents' generation and the generation before that that kind of still hang on to political blackness. Um, I don't tend to hear it from our generation. I think we, we haven't been brought up with it so it's not really a thing for us but it was a thing um, and that's often why it's often brought up but as we know, 
um, you know, black and Asian people confounding all their issues um, into one to make BAME is problematic, it's annoying, it's unhelpful, and so it doesn't help to then label Asian people as black when it comes to celebrating history. So the group began and they started organising in a kind of grassroots setting, as we said earlier. Um, Obi Ekbuna, he was arrested quite early on, December 1968, on a charge of conspiracy to murder police officers because of an essay he wrote about resisting police violence. Um, he, unfortunately, again, another black man to, to face the opposing end of the Race Relations Act. And, yeah, he was kind of taken out of the, the political activism sphere, shall we say. And Althea Jones-Lacoint, she kind of stepped up and took on the kind of leadership role within the party, uh, within the movement, sorry. Uh, it was a party in America, but a movement in Britain. Unfortunately, um, the arrest, it did attract quite negative media attention. And it was kind of the first media attention that they were getting. And it was unfortunate that it was negative because they were quite literally just labelled as like black radicalists, extremists and as I said before, black liberation movements always, always, always create fear and the fact that they weren't just being, you know, labelled as a black liberation movement, they were racialists, radicalists, extremists and that just wasn't good at all. Um, it wasn't good for their image. However, if you understood what they were actually saying, what they were actually fighting for, then you wouldn't really label them as that. But the British state did not did not see it that way. So they also had um, a photographer called Neil Kenlock. And Neil Kenlock is integral to this story. He's integral to keeping the memory of the Black Panthers alive in Britain because he was a photographer and his work has been preserved and restored and he's still alive today. And from his work, we have been able to find out so much historically about the Panthers. Otherwise, I would say we wouldn't really know anything because they were quite obsolete quite quickly. And Neil Kenlock said he went to a meeting um, because he was handed a flyer that said, have you ever faced racial discrimination? If yes, come to this meeting. So he thought, oh, all right, I'll go to the meeting. And he said, you know, I'm a photographer. I've been taking pictures of people in the community. That's kind of what he did. And they said, oh, we need a photographer. You can become our photographer. And he became the official photographer for the Panthers. I promise any picture you see of the Panthers was probably taken by him. And the picture of, I've posted it on the History Hotline Instagram, where there's a woman standing by a door and it's a black woman and the door says, um, keep Britain white, I believe. Um, that is a picture he took. Um, he also has taken pictures of, there's a picture of Farouk Dondi outside of a building that was bombed um, in a racist attack against the Panthers and himself, um, and he's holding up a newspaper. I'll post that one on the uh, History Hotline Instagram as well so you can see that. But some of the kind of key images and the key moments he was there to capture, and he's still alive so he can tell those stories. There's been um, exhibitions at the Black Cultural Archives, and I think that's where most of his collection is kept as well. It's archived there. And I think otherwise, apart from that, at the National Archives at Kew, there is a lot of information from the state, actually, because obviously it's the National Archives on the Black Panthers. So between those two archives, you we've managed to build up quite a good picture of the Panthers and who they were. And also the fact that it wasn't actually that long ago. So a lot of the Panthers were alive in the early 2000s when people started to uncover this history. A lot of them have passed away since, but, you know, some are still alive and their children are most likely alive. So we can still get this history and this is the reason why I like studying modern history. So 
The impact of the Black Panther movement in Britain, obviously I've said that it didn't really last all that long of a time. However, it did help expose racism within the government. As we've talked about in the Mangrove 9 case, the Black Panthers are kind of credited for that. The tactics that they used um, in the way they conducted themselves during that trial, they were able to expose um, the British government and the state of being essentially racist. Um, you've got to listen to that episode, the two episodes actually, if you if you want to know exactly how they did that. Great story. Um, and also they were able to help expose and also deal with the issues caused by racism within the education system, following on from the Education Subnormal episode. As we mentioned, the schools, supplementary schools and Saturday schools, they were a Black Panther tradition, notorious, um, notoriously used in America. They did set up breakfast clubs and after-school programs and Saturday schools and supplementary schools because they believed as a core of their values in that the fact that education was so important and it was so necessary in order to kind of raise up the next generation the right way, believing in themselves, having that pride of being black. Black pride was such an important element of the movement and that's why education was such a big, big thing because they believe that, you know, if you knew that as a black person you were powerful, your ancestors did great things, um, you know, that you should have pride in yourself as a black person. They were key points, and it's interesting that in an interview, Neil Kenlock, actually, the photographer, he mentioned that during that time he felt the most confident and had the most pride in himself whilst he worked with the Panthers because he just felt like, you know, he was around people that were fighting for his right to exist in a way where he could be happy and make a living and live a decent life, a life that he deserved to live, not one faced with racial discrimination, not one where he had to, you know, look down when passing someone that was white on the road and worry about if they were going to attack him or verbally abuse him. He felt confident during that time um, and it's quite interesting for him to pick that out of all the things and I would say that is one of the key legacies of the Panthers in regards to educating people into making people feel a sense of pride and a sense of belonging to a black community in order to help them go on. As we mentioned in the Mangrove 9 episode, I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, but I don't want to say things I've already said for the people that have already listened, Um, but we spoke about surveillance and the fact that of all the people to be arrested in the Mangrove 9 protest, it's funny that so many of them were Black Panthers. It's as if they were being watched, (laughs) which we know they were. And Robin Burns, um, who is a historian, and he's Darkest House biographer, actually, he, in his research for you know, his work, um, him alongside of another historian, Paul Field, they requested the files that were the documentation of surveillance of the Black Panthers uh, during the time that they were an active movement. And under the Freedom of Information Act, they asked to have, you know, these files and they asked to have them released and they realised the extent of the surveillance. There was a specific surveillance desk for the Black Panthers. It was a special branch desk. There were actually six in total over time. And it documents all the main players. Althea jones Lacoint, they said she was the brains behind the movement, very militant. Darkus Howe, leading black militants in London, and he's created all this black extremist literature. Roy Saw, they said he was a great orator. They, you know, watched him on Speaker's Corner. They said he was deeply involved in activities, um, and he was also convicted under the Race Relations Act of 1965. Shock horror. Who wasn't? Didn't, you know, matter who you were, 
if you were within these movements and you were a loud enough voice or in a big enough player, there was surveillance on you. Now, as I said, the Black Panthers, they kind of disbanded and dissolved and there was a lot of there was a lot of tension between the people within the movement. There was quite a lot of bickering and I think maybe they couldn't not couldn't necessarily decide on a vision for the movement, but there were lots of different directions the movement could go into and they couldn't decide on one. And eventually, actually, a lot of movements were born born out of the Black Panthers. There was a lot of black women that became activists of their own within movements such as uh, the Brixton Black Women's Group and women like Beverly Bryan, Olive Morris and Liz Obi, they organised and formed that. And I think it just got to a point where, you know, the Asian, a lot of Asian people, they started to split off and started to create movements that were more specific for their needs. Black women, you know, being caught up in a movement like the Panthers. Unfortunately, as much as we can say positive about the Panthers, the Panthers were still upholding a very patriarchal system within their organisation. We're not going to get into that today, though, because that is definitely for a different episode where we discuss women's movements, black women's movements, but not today. So, overall, I'd like to say that the legacy of the Panthers, although it wasn't a very long-lasting movement, there was a strong legacy. You know, these supplementary schools, Saturday schools, a legacy that's continued on. There are some that still exist today and it's 2020. Their ability to, you know, turn the kind of justice system on its head and have a judge say that, you know, the police were acting with racial prejudice. The amount of work that they did against immigration acts and bills and educating the black community in order to feel that sense of pride and confidence in themselves are lasting legacies. The skills that the individuals that were part of the movements must have learnt and went on to build on in other movements and other organisations. A few examples, obviously we mentioned the women's groups before, but Neil Kenlock, the photographer, he went on to actually um, find Choice FM, which is the first black-owned radio station in the UK, and... The Journal of Race Today, which was done by Darkus Howe, Lyndon Kwesi Johnson, Farouk Dondi and Leila Hassan Howe, that continued for 15 years. So there were publications, literature coming out of that. And I'm sure a whole generation of people are quite thankful to the Panthers for some of the things that they implemented into their minds and into their communities at the time when they were quite a powerful and quite a strong movement. That is everything we have time for today. Um, I'm trying to keep these episodes under 30 minutes. I think I've just gone over. Um, But I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've managed to learn something. If you have any questions, as usual, send me a DM on Twitter or Instagram and let me know what you thought about the episode. And I will see you here again next week.